dude, there's a Yeti in your bedroom. Like, <laughs> what? Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Soul Soup. I'm Margot Sidlin, and you can find Soul Soup wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Soul Soup Pod. I am back today with another book club episode. This time it is about Bliss Montage by Ling Ma. So it is the first episode where I'm going to dive deep into one specific book. And before I do that, I wanted to talk a little bit about why I chose Bliss Montage and why this episode feels a bit special. So for starters, I think that Bliss Montage is sort of an interesting pick for an episode in this podcast because it's a fairly new book and not a lot of people have read it. So it's not necessarily the best choice to bring the whole audience in for a book talk, but I had to do this book because I would be so remiss if I didn't have my real life book club on a book club episode and my summer book club was all organized around this one book. The standard book club probably meets once a month or so and talks about a different book every time they meet, but my summer book club picked one book and we did a deep dive. So we met three times and broke Bliss Montage up into parts and talked about each different part every time we met. And it was such a special way to get into the weeds with one particular book. I felt by the end that we knew it really well, that we knew each other really well, and I was going to be so sad if I didn't have an opportunity to capture on a podcast episode for the book club series this really special interaction I had around this book. So that is why I picked Bliss Montage. I happened to really love the book, and I am excited to share um, all of those opinions with you. But if you didn't read Bliss Montage, this might be sort of a weird episode. Um, I still think that if you are somebody like me, maybe you're a little bit of a nerd and you miss your high school English class and listening to a book talk and analysis is comforting or interesting, even if you haven't read the book, this one might be for you. If you like to turn on Soul Soup when you're doing laundry or driving in the car on your way to work, I hear you and I see you, and this episode might be for you if you're just going to enjoy the background sound. And if none of that's true, and you haven't read the book, and you don't care to, and book talk is not for you, then you can skip this one, and I won't be offended, and I will be back in two weeks with a non-book club episode. But just in case that is your situation, I also want to spend a little bit of time talking about some things that aren't related to Bliss Montage specifically, but have to do with the general theme of these book club episodes. And one of the reasons that I started this book club series was just to talk about why reading is important. I talked before in the, the first book club episode about how I think that books and reading can be part of like the connective tissue of humanity, and I, I really believe that. So I think it would be worthwhile to spend just a little bit of time gabbing about what makes books good, what makes them interesting, and what makes it appealing to us as human beings to spend so much time in these other worlds. Um, just the other day I was talking to somebody who said that life is so hard that they just need to get into a show, get into a book, and just live a life that isn't their own for a minute. 
And I think that's exactly what reading is, especially um, fiction, but even nonfiction like memoirs and stuff. It puts you into the headspace of a walk of life that isn't your own. And I think that can be really special. But not all headspaces that aren't your own are nice ones to be in. So I think that there is some sort of a process by which we establish what books are good, what books are interesting, what compels us. I used to be a reader that when I would pick up a book and be reading it, I felt so committed. Like I had to see it through if I started it. I had to finish the book that I was reading. And I don't feel that way anymore. I now feel like life is way too short and there are too many books I want to read that if I'm not enjoying a book, I will give up. And there is part of me that still feels um, badly doing that. But there is some sort of a metric that's happening in my head and I'm sure in other people's heads about how do I know if I like this book? How do I know if I want to commit this time, this energy, this emotional space to a book? So I asked my Instagram followers on Soul Soup Pod um, what they think makes a book good or interesting. And I just want to share some of those responses, talk about it a little bit, and spend some time thinking about um, the very question I asked them, which is what makes a book good or interesting? So I'll share some of those responses now. Someone said, if you can relate and find yourself in at least one aspect of the book. I really like that answer because I don't always think that we can relate and find ourselves in characters of books. Often we can, especially if they're sort of archetypal characters. But I do think that I've read books where the setting feels like a character. Um, I think a great example of that, I always think of John Steinbeck as like, the setting is always a principal character in his work. If you can find yourself in the setting or maybe even in the, the plot or, I don't know, some of those minutiae um, that make books what they are that aren't the characters, it creates resonance between you and the book. I love that one. Um, this one is gr a great tangible piece of advice. The first line of the book is how I determine whether the author can truly capture the story. I love that. I know somebody else who would always read the first line and the last line of a book. I never do that. I, I really, really try not to ever read the end of the book ahead of time. Um, but I know lots of people who do, <laughs> who do do that. And that always kind of scares me because it feels like the type A part of me thinks that that's a big rule break and it scares me. Um, yeah, my mom always, when we would go to the library as kids and when I'd be deciding what book to get, she would always have me read um, either the first paragraph or the first page of the books I was deciding between. And to this day, that's still how I decide what to read if I'm deciding between a couple books, which for me is a little rare because I'm usually reading like five to seven books at the same time. Uh, so I'm not really deciding. But if ever I am deciding, that's what I do. So I love that piece of advice. Um, the next one says, how the human experience can be put into words you never thought of yourself. Mm. I love that. That makes me think of like when you tell your friends your problems and they repeat something back to you and the way that they're hearing and interpreting and analyzing your experience in different words and it really resonates or like hits your ear a little different. Like we're all living the human experience, but we all conceptualize it so differently. And I love the idea that a book can really capture your attention if it puts the human experience back to you in words you had never thought of before. I think that's cool. Um, 
This next one says, being transported to a different time, place, world, or set of ideas. Yeah, I really like that too. I think that connects to the idea of um, sort of detaching from your own reality when you're reading a book, kind of stewing in a new reality. I really like that. I think that there are plenty of books that are a, the same time, place, world set of ideas that are really compelling. Um, but I agree that the diversity is really good, especially when I'm thinking about fiction in particular. Um, that same person says, a book that makes me feel something or evokes emotion or a response from me. Yeah, I think books that are um, even potentially controversial or something that just probes into you and um, is really evocative. Um, I think that's a really good response. Um, the next one is an effective sensory description. I totally agree. Um, I, for me, that feels the same as like a really descriptive setting. Um, that's something that's like really immersive, brings you into a story, sort of pulls you into that like very human piece. That's like, again, if that's the connective tissue of books, if that's what I'm going with, then it seems like every book, fiction, nonfiction, whatever, should be able to connect to that kind of core human something. And sensory descriptions seem like a great way of doing that. Okay, um, another one. If it's written in a way that allows you to fully be captured by the work, I want to be drawn in. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely have had experiences where the premise of a book is great, but I just can't deal with the writing style. I feel like that's why I really struggle with beach reads. Um, there are definitely times where I want to read something really light, but for me, I really want, it sounds really pretentious, so I'm so sorry, but <laughs> I really want the language of the books that I'm reading to feel really rich and like literarily meaningful. I want there to be something interesting about the writing, but not necessarily to the point that it makes it hard to comprehend or understand or be a part of like sometimes when you read classics like the Charles Dickens that can be really hard because it doesn't pull you in in the same way because it's almost like reading another language it's so old um that's like one end of the spectrum and then the other end of the spectrum is like the beach reads and I think they both have their place um and I think it depends on the person like whether those draw you in or not but for me I I agree like I want to be drawn in and I want the language to be something that's interesting. I want to be part of what's drawing me in and not just the plot, not just the characters, but like the writing itself. Um, okay, this next one. Beautifully and intelligently written and helps make sense of the world around me. Yeah, I love that one. Um, I agree. I think that the the best, a book at its best, helps make sense of the world around you. Um, again, that like core fabric of humanity that we see in writing. Um, I think that's what books of all kinds are doing is helping to comprehend life and um, in some way or another books seem to even unintentionally um, address life's big questions. And I also appreciate books that are beautifully and intelligently written. Let's see. Unique stories that test the boundaries of writing style. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, like, unique stories is almost, like, give or take because I think you could take the same story, the same, like, archetypal, like, the hero's quest or, like, whatever. There's so many different, like, 
stories that we always see. Like I've heard once um, every story is the same story, which I always think about. Like every song is the same song. Every movie is the same movie. And like, obviously that's not true in a way, but when you go macroscopic, like it is, there's only so many stories that we really see. That's why like um, <laughs> so many movies are just adaptations of different Shakespeare plays. Because um, every story really is the same story. But being able to take those archetypal stories that we're always seeing and make them unique, make them your own, and test the boundaries of writing style through that is really cool. And yeah, that's something I find really compelling too. Okay, this next one. I love a book that makes me mad at the world. <laughs> I love that one. Um, I'm trying to think of books that I've read that have made me mad at the world. Um, I, I would be so curious to know like more specifically what that means or looks like for the person who wrote this in. For me, I think that just means like, again, that evocative piece, like when something really forces an emotional response from you, that sort of emotional investment that you have by way of having been committed to giving that response back to the book, if that makes sense, it almost makes it like something of relationship you're having with the book. Because if you're reading a book that's like boring and it's not pulling any emotion out of you, um, I mean, obviously we can still be intellectually tickled by a book, but if a book's completely boring, disinteresting, unemotional, then you have no personal relationship to it. You're not engaging with it at all. It becomes a one-way relationship almost. But when you have that curiosity or anger or whatever else that's being piqued by the book you're reading, I think it almost becomes a reciprocal relationship between you and the book. Like you're both giving each other different energy. I don't know, maybe I'm uh, being crazy with that one, but it just feels like there's something to that piece of like personifying books and then having these interactions with them. Cause also like different books hit people differently. Um, it seems like your relationship to the book, that personalization of it makes a big difference. I don't know. There's something there. You guys can tell me if I'm crazy later. Um, okay, the next one. Something that makes me question or challenges my thinking. I love that. Um, that's obviously something I enjoy having gone through my philosophy degree. Like, that's exactly why I did a philosophy degree, because I wanted to be challenged. And yeah, I agree. I think that the best and most interesting books are going to pull you outside of your belief system in a way. Like they're going to make you question things that you think are true, walks of life that you have certain biases about or that you've made assumptions on. Um, yeah, challenging all of that. I completely agree. Okay, a couple more. Um, interesting characters with unique perspectives. Yeah, I agree. It's really hard to read books where you don't care for the characters. That's always how I felt about Sally Rooney books. Um, I've read three of her books and I have never once really cared for any of the characters. Like I've always thought they were annoying or hard to root for or whatever. Um, but the fact that I've finished all three of those books and that I have read three of her books at all, I think says a lot about 
her merit as a writer and creating really compelling storylines, creating um, a lot of like emotional depth in her books. Um, because it's really hard to read books when you don't care for the characters. Um, so I agree, like, I am much more likely to be willing to stick with a book if I think that the characters are interesting or unique or relatable, um, if they resonate in some way. Um, okay, this one is specifically for fiction. Um, I think it's when you can really be drawn into the world that has been created by the author. Yeah, world building is huge. I know that um, Chris talked about that in the last book club episode with um, Harry Potter just feeling so immersed in that world. And like, that was his first experience of loving reading because he felt like he was a part of that, that fantasy fictional space that had been created. I think a lot of people share that experience. Um, of feeling like if you can be pulled into that place. And again, that brings up the question of setting too, right? Like with the John Steinbeck, um, like when you read um, Of Mice and Men, like being pulled into that like farmland and like feeling like you know the terrain, um, you can picture like this Great Depression era world that he has created. And obviously that's inspired by real life in a way that Harry Potter is very detached from. But when you can imagine the plane on, on which all of the plot is um, occurring, it makes it a lot easier to be a part of the story yourself. Okay, and then this is the last one. What draws me in shifts and reflects the chapter of life or the mood I'm in. I think that's the magic of books, how it meets you in different stages of life. I completely agree. And I think that might be something that's justifying that I'm not crazy for what I said earlier about different books meeting you differently at different times and sort of having that reciprocal relationship with them. I, I think that that response makes me think that maybe that's true, that like we resonate with different books in all of these different ways and at different stages of our lives. Like, I don't know, sometimes I'm like really not in the mood to read something where I know the principal character is gonna die. Or sometimes I'm really not in the mood for, mood for romance. I'm like, I don't care. Like, I don't wanna know about this love story, whatever. It's not interesting to me. And other times I'm like, wouldn't it be sweet if they fell in love? <laughs> like we have these different moods that, um, can vary so much and like the seasons of life can be so big or so small, like week to week or year to year or decade to decade. Um, I totally agree that like, I think what makes a book interesting is how it resonates with you where you are. Um, there are plenty of books that I've put down and been like, it, like I have to come back to this book because I think it's interesting. I just can't do it right now. And I think that's an equally worthwhile way to think about books. Okay, those are all the responses. I hope that this was interesting. This was my first little interaction with like listener write-ins, um, which brings me to my next point actually, which is that I want to introduce a lot more listener engagement with the podcast. Since I am just doing this me, myself, and a mic, sometimes it's really weird to just be sitting here and talking. But when I have stuff like this, I feel like I am talking to you. So I want to create even more opportunity to do that. So I have created an email address for Soul Soup. It is soulsouppod at gmail.com, much like the Instagram handle. So it should be easy to keep track of. And I want to hear from you about literally anything. 
I want to know any stories that you need to tell someone. I want to know any weird thoughts or opinions you have, if you have reactions to any of the past episodes, if you have ideas for new episodes. I want my inbox to be your soapbox and your brain dump, whatever you want to send me, I want to hear it. But if you're in need of some inspiration for things to write in about, then I would love if you would want to write in about some of the topics for the next couple of episodes. So the episode that's coming out in two weeks is going to be about gossip. Is it right or wrong? Is it morally acceptable? What do we think of gossip? All sorts of gossipy questions. So if you have opinions about the rightness or wrongness of gossip, if you have stories about talking shit and it backfiring, anything like that, send them my way. And the episode following that one, I'm going to have a friend on the podcast and she's going to explain to me a little bit about the economy and I'm going to explain to her a little bit about philosophy and ethics. So if you have any questions about anything pertaining to those topics, let's hear them. If you have conspiracy theories, I want to hear them. And if there's something that you've always heard about in pop culture or the media or the news and you've never really understood it, like who the hell is Nietzsche or what's inflation, send those questions to my inbox and we will do our best to explain them. Uh, no guarantees or promises. Once again, the email address is soulsouppod at gmail.com. So that's two P's between soup and pod. And I will love to hear from you and we'll share your mailbox submission on the podcast. I'll include your name if you want it. I'll skip it if you don't. And with all of that said, I think we're going to transition now to some bliss montage. So to get started, I just want to say that the book has some themes in it of things like sexual assault, abuse, drug use, um, some troubling relationships with parents, um, immigration and racism, and a few things like that. So because that stuff is in the book, that's also in our conversation about the book. So I just want to encourage everyone to listen with care. And if this episode isn't for you, that is a-okay. And you can join us for our next one in a couple weeks. But to dig into Bliss Montage, I first wanted to share what some of my Soul Soup listeners had to say about the book if they already read it. So I had three people write in. This first one says, I really liked Bliss Montage. It felt like a peek into a dream journal which I totally agree with. I think that the dreamy sort of quality to the book is part of what makes it so special. It feels like um, reading something otherworldly almost. It's a little bit sci-fi. It's a little bit horror. It's sort of a genre melding book. And I agree, there's something very dreamlike about it. The next one says, the story that stood out to me the most was G. First, I thought that the way she wrote it was beautiful, and it felt like I was taking the drug myself. I also thought the themes of loyalty, even in toxic friendships, were interesting. It makes me wonder at what point we can turn our backs on the people that feel like family to us. Is there a limit to our love? Especially thinking about the news with Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis, it makes me wonder at what point is it self-protective to step back from friendships. I also like how it was written in that the readers knew something bad was going to happen, but there was hope that the two friends could continue being good friends. It didn't make us give up on them. 
Yeah, I also loved that story. We talk about it quite a bit in the episode, so I'll save some of my thoughts for the past Margo who recorded the interview initially. Um, but yeah, I also thought that that was a super compelling story and the friendship aspect was really interesting. And yeah, it definitely did feel like you were taking the drug yourself. It was really immersive in that way. Okay, and then the last one. I adored this book. I really did. To put it ineloquently, it was Black Mirror for girls who've based their personalities off of Fleabag and the Bell Jar, me. However, I found every single story to be entirely without resolve. It contributed not only to the momentum of the book as a whole, but to the nagging discomfort and queasiness I felt in each uncanny and immersive story. But it did bother me how each new story started with the hum of anxious energy from pondering the fates of each past story's protagonist. I think that might have been the point, though. Yeah, I totally agree. The book is an uncomfortable one to read in a lot of ways. It doesn't really let you settle in. Um, for those who haven't read it, it is a collection of short stories, if I forgot to mention that. So it's true that there is like a lack of feeling unfinished between the stories. One thing we talked about, I think in the episode, um, and certainly in our book club overall, was that it was unclear who the story's protagonist was, if it was the same person all throughout. Um, there were some different questions about the perspectives you were hearing from. So there was something that felt sort of unfinished about it. It felt hard to place yourself in it. I know some of the girls in my book club felt a little bit um, ill at ease and, and didn't like the book so much for that. I found it really interesting. Um, and I know that I say it in the episode, but I do think that it reminded me of Carmen Maria Mikado's um, Her Body and Other Parties, which is another short story collection that I really liked. Um, yeah, I, I agree. And I think also that feeling of queasiness definitely comes from the sci-fi horror part of the collection as well. Ooh, I love that everybody wrote in. Thank you to everyone who submitted answers to my questions on Bliss Montage and on reading overall. I really appreciated hearing all of your thoughts and being able to share them. And I look forward to hearing more from everyone in my soulsouppod at gmail.com inbox. So please do send me stuff. Without further ado, I am going to play the interview with my book club. You will hear from my friends Olivia R, Olivia O, and Farzine, as well as myself. That was our summer book club. Uh, once again, like there are some themes of things that could be um, a little troubling to hear about, so please listen with care. And if it's not clear already, spoilers for Bliss Montage ahead. If you are not going to join us for the book talk part of this episode, then I'll let you have this music play you out. And if you are going to stick around, then you'll hear my voice again in about 10 seconds. Another great thing to do as we start would be for everyone to say their name so that people can track whose voice belongs to who. Um, I am Farzine. I'm Olivia O. I'm Olivia R. <laughs> And this is our book club. <laughs> um, we've been reading Bliss Montage by Ling Ma. And this is our last book club on it. And so maybe we could start just by saying, maybe everybody could give a rating of the book out of five, maybe, and say a little bit 
why and I know because I already read your reviews on Goodreads <laughs> but um I feel like recapping it couldn't hurt I can start upon reading the book myself like the first time I think that it wasn't exactly my cup of tea and I think that's why I initially I think I gave it like a three out of five like a six out of ten that kind of thing and I think it was mainly because a lot of the metaphors were completely lost on me and I was reading this with like the intention of trying to find the deeper meaning behind all of the like really kooky wacky stuff that um Ling Ma includes in it but and I kind of figured this would happen after talking about it in book club I think my rating has gone up to like a 3.75 like a 7.5 yes spicy um because now I I think I get a lot of it a lot more and I think that um I can definitely attribute a lot of that to just us like chatting about it and I think that um that might not literally even be how Ma intended but I think we derived a lot of interesting meaning from it that's like relative to our own lives and like our own um current societal conditions and that has really um changed my mind about the book so I do think I like it a little bit more now I agree with that because I feel like the book initially feels really intangible just because it's I mean the style of like this almost pseudo horror sci-fi sort of a thing is just hard to anchor but then the more we talked about it and could connect a bit to the narrator or the narrators maybe um who are like we mon um it felt easier to like like make it feel connected to our reality even though it seems makes sense of it yeah like make it make the realities of the book and the reality that we live in cohere Mm -hmm. i would say that um my rating started off at around a four and now is like more than the 4.5 region I really enjoyed the book reading it on my own and like I loved I mean I love surrealism anything that's kind of like very metaphorical and weird and that's what I liked about it just that Ma's writing is very um unique and doesn't try to be anything else and she's just writing I I think stories that she likes and not trying to make it make more sense for an audience like she's just doing what she does which I think is so cool um but I think that even after talking about it there's still and maybe just I've read a lot of short story collections and I'm kind of picky I think that and one thing that is like I really enjoyed but also I thought was a bit of a weakness was like the endings of all this of all the Mm. stories and I mean I think that was one of the main things we talked about too and what our interpretations of the endings were which was really interesting for book club, but I felt like as a collection, just for individual readers, it could be seen as one of the weaknesses. I think my friend Ashley on Goodreads said the same Mm -hmm. thing in her review of it, that like, I don't want to mince her words, but I think the impression I left from her, the impression I walked away with from her review was that each story left her kind of feeling queasy as she was entering Mm -hmm. the next one. Like it left her feeling unsettled and a little unfinished maybe because hmm. sometimes that can be a good thing I know I, I kind of think that was the point yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but it's not a nice feeling necessarily like yeah. as, as the general reader and it wasn't as clear um I think going off of like maybe it 
not being as clear like clarity or whatever for me I remember initially I was really put off by how similar tonally it was throughout the entire book yeah and again that that's not necessarily a weakness I think that just a lot of the short story collections I'd read in the past had very distinct narrators each time and so this time I was like oh this literally could be the same person the mm-hmm. entire time and that put me off a little bit but again it's not necessarily a weakness on her part if that's what she intended it's just yeah it just wasn't my cup of tea initially and yeah what did you think should i approach the mic sure <laughs> I, it cannot hurt approaching mic um i would give this book a four out of five which is what i gave it on goodreads and my review didn't change it reminded me a lot of kafka who i like um because a lot of the stories start out where you think you know what's going on but then something really crazy happens and then you start to be like what the heck and i liked that about this book and i also agree with what olivia o said (laughs) that was pretty much what i wanted to say and you said it all so i'll leave my rating at that I didn't even give my rating. I don't remember what I gave it on Goodreads, but I think I would give it a five. Oh, oh. I, I really liked it. And I think I liked it for one of the reasons you didn't, Farzine. Like, I really liked the tone of it. I feel like in general, I think we talked about this in one of our different meetings and mm-hmm. Olivia R. <laughs> you you agreed that with That's me. That <laughs> <laughs> like, that's sort of like, nostalgic for now sort of melancholy a little bit flat tone mm-hmm. is something I that i think is really beautiful a stoic tone yeah books, mm-hmm. and i would describe this as being that but that's not for everyone some people really enjoy reading like happy very like outwardly joyous books or like outwardly tragic and this book was very neutral and i liked that about it which i think made it the sort of like horror slant to it uh-huh. feel that much more unsettling yeah because, because she's neutral about it yeah. the narrator never I, I i the narrators or narrator we never really see them like display too much um like confusion or fascination with whatever is afflicting them or whatever weird thing is going on in their life but yeah <laughs> that's yeah so true. okay i think that the next question we should have about is like which essay are you walking away with like what's the essay that's sticking with you the most or keeping you up at night or that's like I don't know just showing up for you after you read the book um that's a great question and I don't even know I think I can speak to that I think that my two favorite stories were definitely um office hours and Peking duck those two were my favorites uh, for very different reasons and I do think that those two are my favorites because those were the ones I could make the most sense out of initially without any extra help um, and I also think that those two are the ones I could relate to the most or relate to my life the most or people in my life the most. It's really unfortunate that it's been like a while since I read especially the last few stories of um, or just the book in general but Office Hours, um, I think, was my favorite because it explores a lot. Of, it's very, like, um, fantasy-centered. It's mm. fantastical. It's giving Narnia. Very <laughs> much yeah. so giving Narnia. Very much so. Um, but it also, I really liked how it explored um, the relationships between students and their teachers, even mm. if they're not inappropriate 
of nature. Um, this was a little inappropriate, but I mean, it could have been a lot worse. And I think that I really liked, um, there was one line that really stuck out to me was um, the, the student is talking about her professor who she has a connection with. And she says, after all, she did not know him that well. She reminded herself she had just been his student, a vampire. And I really loved that metaphor, like students being vampires who like mm -hmm. kind of um, leech information out of their professors and then take it with them. Because um, I think we always hear about student-teacher relationships in a very like, um, in a in a very um, wholesome and positive way of like, you know, you carry the knowledge that teachers give you for your whole life. And I thought this was such an interesting subversion of that by making it so like gothic almost um, mm. and not necessarily wholesome. Uh, so I really liked Office Hours for that reason. And then I really liked Peking Duck um, because I think that that was the story that was most centered. And a lot of Asian writers do write about this, but most centered around um the life of newcomers in Canada, especially from places like Asia and the struggles that they face and how much language um, can be a barrier for newcomers, refugees, immigrants in Western countries. And it, I thought that it did a really excellent job of um, exploring that. And I thought about that a lot after um, finishing the book. And I think that that was one of the stories we were gonna talk about today. So I'm excited yeah. to do so. So to build off of what Farzine was saying about Peking Duck, because it also is one that will really resonate with me, it's, I know there's like so many like, you know, sad Asian mom, Asian daughter stories out there now, but this one, like, I think Ling Ma really showed off her writing talent here, where she writes a really unique story in in a way that like she's subverting kind of the um, chronological order of events and she, you know, both brings in the daughter's perspective and the, and the mother's perspective in a way that I think hasn't really been done before. Mm -hmm. um, and even just the way she like switches from the first person. Yeah. Which is one of the only times in the whole collection that you know that the mm -hmm. person speaking in the first person is different than yeah. the standard narrator. Yeah. yeah. I if, thought it if was... they're all different, maybe we don't know, but. I thought it was her strongest in terms of writing and that it would make an amazing like movie even mm -hmm. or like a full book. Um, but also remembering as a short story, I think was my favorite because it, this one was kind of giving Midsummer, and mm -hmm. it was a really interesting. You mean returning? Uh, or returning. What, what did I say? Remembering? <laughs> remembering. Returning. The one about um, the wife and husband who go to the husband's home country for this ritual where uh people who are you know in need of some sort of rebirth will go through this burial where they're underground overnight and they're dug up in the morning and if they're if they're good they're good if they're not they're not kind of thing <laughs> and it just kind of explores break. yeah it explores this relationship that's kind of crumbling and these ideas of you know who we are and like where we come from um and I thought it was, it had like a perfect, like dark tinge that she did really well. And that kind of fantasy place setting. Um, but still, and this is just thematic of all of her stories, like that dark tinge of just real life adjacent stories, I guess. Mm. Yeah. That just tell about like human emotions. Yeah. Those were both really interesting ones that were like very different and playful especially like 
um well I'm just I'm stuck on the last one still because mm-hmm. I think that that one oh, with the baby's arm no not that one oh, I meant okay. um yeah Peking Duck because that one has such interesting like overt playing with the language I think is so interesting like even one thing I love about it is that little um scene sort of in the middle where she's in a writer's workshop and she shares what supposedly is the story that we're actually reading and someone Mm -hmm. says um the thing about like it's unreasonable that you've written this story as if the mom who doesn't speak much English has perfect English if it's from her perspective um and it I found that really interesting that a she put that in the middle of the story but b like just sort of the meta commentary on the fact that like you don't really like so much gets lost in translation yeah and taking it and and like not doing that thing of making it the broken English not Mm -hmm. like trying to lose anything in translation just giving it in its more complete sense almost as if the language is just a a vessel for ideas rather than like it being about the language itself I thought was really interesting especially because the story is framed by this idea of your happiest memory could be a story you heard from someone else like someone else's happiest memory Mm -hmm. could be your happiest memory that idea alone is so interesting yeah but then when you add it to like the language play that she's doing this idea that like a like the daughter is telling the mother story as if she is the mother so like taking someone's memory and Mm -hmm. making it your own 100 and be like like the language of how you do that being secondary to the actual conveyed experience I don't know there's something to that that I think is really unique I haven't really seen elsewhere and I feel like it not to be too philosophy but I feel like it opens up so many interesting epistemic questions about the way we consider knowledge and memories and experiences and how we consider truth and reality and like also the universality of the human experience Mm -hmm. like how much are we really sharing and how much are we really mm-hmm. living independently and for a story that short to bring up that many questions yeah. for me I think yeah. it like is a testament to how powerful this writing is mm-hmm. no I thought it was like it's such a testament to her talent mm-hmm. I, I think, think and her so ability too, yeah. and I like that you brought up like questions about like you know the discussion between the mother and the daughter earlier on in the story when you know the daughter is asking her mom like oh did you like stories whatever and then the mom questions her being like well you know those were my experiences um how could you write mm-hmm. from that perspective when they didn't happen to you they happened to me and I took a life narratives course in my last year <clears throat> um in English uh like the in my English degree and um it was like a new course and it was supposed to be centered around you know life narratives and one of our central questions that would come up every time we started a new text was um who gets to tell whose story Mm -hmm. uh we read this one um uh life narrative it was like a biography autobiography of this um Vietnamese woman and she tells in that book she also tells the stories of her parents upbringing in Vietnam and you know coming to America and what that all was like and we discussed at length you know did she have the right to tell those stories Mm -hmm. and how much truth telling is happening here and how much 
of this is her perception layered onto events that actually happened and how does that alter um, our perception of these events happening to these people and you can it's like an onion you can just peel back yeah. layers and layers and I really liked that this story also made you question that as well like did the daughter have the right to tell those stories I know we talk a lot about you know immigrant stories need to be told and you know elevate Asian Asian voices mm -hmm. and it's like by voices <laughs> but it's like who gets to do that just yeah. because the daughter speaks English and just because the daughter has degrees, does that give her the right to tell these stories when they actually happen to her mom? Or just because she's speaking in English, does that discredit her being connected to her mom? Mm -hmm. And aren't we all just interpreting stories in our own ways? Anyway? Oh God, so it, it does a total side thing. Did any of you see Past Lives? Yes, no, yes, 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 yes. Oh my God, you know that one line? What? When her husband says to her, uh -huh. sometimes I feel like I don't actually know what's going on in your head because I don't speak Korean. Yeah. I cried like a no, okay, baby. but when yeah, like a um, baby. he when the husband is telling her, like, you know, you dream in Korean, right? And he's like, mm -hmm. it makes me sad to know that there's this whole world that you go to that I'll never be that I'll never be able to go to, and that that's your your subconscious state, that that's where you are, and that like I know you in English. And I only know you in this version of yourself that you're not actually like, and just how language and translation can be such a like, even now, like confusing thing to navigate and how, yeah. how yeah. we use it in storytelling. That's really interesting. And I, I think that again, brings up the question for me of like truth and reality, because also like, well, I don't want to get too far away from what you just said because it's really interesting and important. But also while you were talking, I was thinking about this question of like, how much are we taking things at face value? Because when we read the story, it seems like the daughter's telling the story and then it switches to the mother's perspective. Yeah. But there's actually nothing telling us that the mom didn't write this story and then create the narrative yeah. of the daughter. Um, Damn, that would be that crazy. Part. Okay. Um, or and that the daughter's not writing about mom or... writing about her. Everything. Right. Yeah. Oh no, God. like we really don't know. Yeah. And so it's kind of also, I, I mean, I think that opens up a, a bunch of cans of worms for me because I also am like thinking about in high school English classes, we were always told like you can't discuss author's intent. Like you can never bring mm -hmm. that up in our mm -hmm. class conversations because um, you don't you, know. You can never we'll speak never... to that. Yeah. Um, which like now. It, think maybe is a little bit bullshit because I think that you can contextualize authors in a certain time and place I and like, always discuss yeah. it discuss it I know maybe you don't like publish it or something like you can go too far yeah right but if you're yeah. not talking about it I think content should this is a safe kind of... space to discuss yeah. authorial intent and yeah. I thank you for that <laughs> I know I think it's so yeah. important and I think that it's like it's silly to think that you could completely remove whoever wrote the content from what the content right. is because it's impossible. Right. Which I guess, again, more cans of worms, artist versus art. But <laughs> back to the point, like, I think that speculating, of course, on like Ma's intent, it feels like that general confusion about like who even is speaking to us in all of these stories. And especially in this last one, where we know that the mother and the daughter are these focal figures, like what conclusions are we supposed to draw from that and I, I think the conclusion that I draw from it is a that stuff about language being like a barrier I love that you brought in that conversation about the past lives which I have not seen but now I will yeah um I but cried. like 
having like your own private world even just the fact that like we have so many human experiences that are so challenging to articulate Mm -hmm. but we have like like I was just thinking about this the other day because I was telling someone a story and I was like I wish I could just put it on a projector screen for Mm -hmm. you because it's not just like my thoughts about this story but also the things I saw and felt okay I I will be giving you this book to let you borrow at the end of this (laughs) so I just finished a book called Pure Color by Sheila oh I've seen that I saw that on your videos but I hate the cover and so I haven't read it I feel like it's quite millennial interest cover I know I hate the cover (laughs) but um it's it's got a big green circle and it says pure color and it's just green but um The idea is that it's taking place in between the first few drafts of the world that God's making and and it's a trial and error situation. And we're following this character who, her name's Mira, and she's just like this confused little girl in one of the drafts of the world, which aren't we all. And like, (laughs) um, she then in a different draft is like a leaf. And like in that draft where she's a leaf, she like forgets about all the kind of human things that, you know, would make her anxious or, or way down and there's different ways of like belief felt and it it can it contextualizes like um I guess not context it conceptualizes the like different concepts about how this world works and is this really the best draft that we have like, and how do we know and, like, and they right talk now. about there's an amazing line where they talk about like they're like in a future draft of the world they'll look back at this one and think about how sad it was that we had to have kids to have someone who would love us That's so deep. and it's like it it just talks about all these things that are normal in our world and about how is this like our yeah. best draft and like but how in like, this like and, and she talks about like in future drafts they'll be so sad that we weren't able to fully say how we felt in a or like that we were limited by something like by something called language and like in these in these yeah. things where your philosophy brain would love uh, it that's giving it a better cover <laughs> that's <then. laughs> i was i while you were talking i was just thinking though that sounds like really ambitious so i'm wondering so ambitious. is the writer like experienced or is so, this like one of their first books yeah because I this is her, really ambitious she's also writing. canadian and um this is i think her third book so i want to read her other two her other one miranda july who's my favorite writer creative of all time miranda july raved about that one and i think it's nonfiction. so i want to check it out i thought that it kind of fell short in its goals but i think it's also such an ambitious goal i don't really know how anyone because i was gonna say this concept is super cool but if not done by someone very very experienced and like very i think that like she did a great job okay um i think that there were like times with and i think margo would appreciate this more than i did but there were times when i thought that it was like too philosophy heavy mm. and where i was like this girl should maybe just write a philosophy book <laughs> um if she like is really into this stuff and that i kind of wanted more about like the fiction story that yeah. but she blended this kind of these philosophical themes with this very cute little fiction story um and i wonder if she was using fiction to talk about philosophy like she was yeah yeah, yeah um so that kind of that reminded me of that but i think you guys should all definitely okay i will read that that sounds really good yeah can i add something of course please do i was gonna say that a while ago i was like i talked to my friend about having kids and stuff like that a lot as i'm sure is normal and my one friend said kind of like in a hesitating way that she only really wants sons because she's like afraid of girls and I don't think she was saying that in a way that was like purposely misogynistic or anything like that like she thinks that boys are better but it's just that she didn't really 
like elaborate but I was thinking about it for a super long time and I think it's because when you have a daughter your daughter is going to understand you a lot better than your son it's too close and there is a line literally and in the that's final what I meant. Yeah. The story and mm-hmm. so for people who haven't read it at the end of the book it's from it. the mom's perspective but if we assume that it's the daughter that wrote it as I think we're supposed to the mom is like I was so excited to have a daughter because like she was gonna understand me and then she's mad about this situation that went down and it, she says don't talk to me about things you don't understand to her daughter but since we're now assuming that the daughter is writing this story it's gone full circle and the daughter now understands the mom because she was able to write this in a way that we support the mom we like we're on her side and I think it does kind of speak to the fact that it would be really scary to have a daughter that understands you perfectly it's almost like an invasion of privacy yeah and with the relationship that I have with my mom I'm from a very unemotional almost like I don't know (laughs) I would say yeah like it's kind of the remnants of like Christianity on both sides of my family we have this relationship where sometimes I'm like I know you so well like this is embarrassing for both you (laughs) and me and so so I like I feel like this story was kind of also about that how it's scary and embarrassing to have a daughter I think when you're also like switching from being a woman to being a mother and then raising a girl who's going to go from being like a daughter to like a woman on her own as well there's like I mean there's so much writing already about like the competition there and you know the everything that comes along with that but I think that it's like such a unique thing to understand being a girl and growing up and seeing your mom in a different way and how it changes over the span of your life and that like yeah that ending of the story talking about how a a daughter will understand you um definitely made me think about my relationship with my mom as well and you know kind of those first few times when you start thinking of your parents as individual people and stuff like that it also yeah. made me think of the story G, which I know we've already gabbed about, yeah. but like she talks so much about obviously appearance and like body issues in that story. And that one was the one where I was really compelled by this idea of like the mom seeing herself in the daughter and therefore like regulating her appearance and like poking at her daughter's hair Mm -hmm. and her weight and her dress and all of these things because it was as if she was looking at her in the mirror yeah and I feel like that's almost a physical manifestation of the stuff you're Mm -hmm. talking about Olivia just like looking at it as such similar entities rather than like two completely distinct people and I also think that there's a degree of just intergenerational trauma that yeah women experience and obviously in different ways depending on sociocultural contexts and everything else but like just this general idea of like the way a woman's body ought to look and the way her behavior ought to be in order to be safe and to survive and therefore consciously or unconsciously imposing those protective strategies on your child um and like what sort of shared understanding of womanhood there is through that yeah Yeah. especially because like and there's a lot of literature on this already um but like that whole 
idea of how and this like makes me really sad to talk about but um how oftentimes in across like womanhood in general but I just speaking as like an immigrant and as an Asian person especially from those standpoints like how we talk about how oftentimes like daughters are like the carriers of all the hopes and dreams that their mothers often couldn't carry out in their lives especially from like a generational standpoint um you know even in the west where um in terms of women's liberation maybe in some ways like yes they've been ahead than the part of the world that I come from but um even here just like generationally we can talk about how like our mothers um even if they were born and raised here etc they had hopes and dreams and aspirations that you know because they were women they couldn't carry out and especially um back in the Middle East and in South Asia like women like my own mother for instance who had hopes and dreams and aspirations that they couldn't carry out because they were women. And then after coming to a country like Canada, because they were immigrants and because they didn't speak English. Mm. And so then they have these daughters and they like, I, I've, I, I don't know if it's like this with my own mom. I've never felt this way. We have a tumultuous relationship in other aspects, but I've have heard from so many young Asian and just BIPOC or immigrant women, especially that they often feel like they are in competition with their mother or they feel pressured by their mothers in a very specific way where they feel like their mother might not even view them as a daughter, but as an extension mm-hmm. of herself and who she could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can either come out as jealousy or that can come out as the pressure to force their daughters to be someone who they wanted to be as opposed to letting their daughters have their own autonomy and I think that Ma raises those questions as well mm-hmm. in this story um but and- not to interrupt you but that made me think of another line from G yeah and G as well yeah because sure. that one does I I think I connect this to your thought about autonomy like this idea that maybe moms have to start imposing those dreams plans ambitions on daughters because they have to sacrifice a degree of autonomy in order to participate in motherhood um and this line in g really stuck out at me especially if we're now considering like maybe we're not reading the story from the perspective we think we are but um she's talking about her mom and she says um and like her mom's issues with motherhood and she says because why should a woman revise her priorities just because she's been forced to observe the social mandate of bearing children? Exactly. Which is an interesting thing for a daughter I to, sent that to, to my say sister. about their mom. <laughs> I sent that to my sister and said, this is how I view my mom. At this <laughs> point, like, that, I mean, yeah, she had no real obligation to do that and to be under those parts. And no woman should be expected to be, like, a good mother. Um, but... And this is like dicey territory, but like I mean, I do I do truly believe that women do not owe anyone except for their own children, uh, to be a good mother, which they also say in that line. Um, I think right after that, they're like, "We're the only ones that can really critique oh, our mom." The because... only parties who have a right to complain about a mother's disinterest are her children, exactly. my twin brother, myself. That's it. No one else. Yeah, and no. I feel I feel that way because I think I'm the only one, and me, my sister and I are the only ones that can critique my mom's bad motherhood and anytime someone else even my dad Mm. I'm like how dare you because why would you need her to be a good like which I know if you if you like it's different like what you owe your parent what you owe your partner I mean but also just like that the societal expectation for any woman to be 
a mom and then also a good mom and whatever those standards are and look like, which are like, I think also impossible to reach fully, are really just societally. My roommate just read a book that I have not read, but she recommended it to me. Um, And she said that the only reason it wasn't like a five star was just because like, I think it was the first book written by this author. And so it wasn't like very well flushed out. The writing wasn't too strong. But I believe it's called A School for Good Mothers. Oh, yeah. And it was on Barack Obama's, like, summer <laughs> reading list. I've seen that. Why is he doing so that? So is Boy Genius <laughs> <laughs> on his summer listening playlist or whatever. Um, But uh, just everything Olivia just said really reminded me of that. And it reminded me also that I do need to get around to reading that. But apparently that's, like, the central theme of that book is, like, what mm-hmm. makes a good mother. And what do we think makes a good mother and do do mothers owe society something yeah. when they become mothers um because i think even yeah. at this point even with whatever stage of feminism we're at there's still such an expectation and just like there's a general consensus that like women are still supposed to be you know nurturing mothers and I don't know when that will ever go away or if it will always be and we're also talking about this in our own conversation with teaching and caretaking and those roles um and just the different expectations um for women to be caretakers and mothers the definition of good mother changes really often too so I'm kind of curious what it'll look like I mean in different cultures too but like if I think back to like when my parents were kids like in the 80s um you were considered like a good mother if you let your baby like do the crying out method and like Mm -hmm. stuff like that and so sometimes people criticize like moms of today and I think about it and I'm like are you gonna look like an idiot in 30 years giving this (laughs) criticism like how as we become more progressive and more pro women's rights like I just wonder like for instance, the motherhood expectation will be yeah like for instance now it's like considered like woke parenting or like good parenting to like you know like be very supportive of your kids deciding to like em- engage in underage drinking or and like sexual activity when they are underage whatever that means whatever and um I have really no thoughts of my own on it but I know that so many people do and I know that 30 years ago being a good parent was making sure your kid wasn't having sex like you know until they hit a certain part of their life whether that be marriage or something else or like making sure your kid wasn't drinking underage and stuff like that and then I wonder if 30 years from now we're gonna look back and be like why the fuck were we letting our kids Uh, drink at 14 that's totally totally like what I mean so it's like, what is a good mother if it changes all the time? Yeah, you know? right. Kindness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like I feel like if your kid is a happy love. adult and they like, mm. and they like feel that they are in a good place and they are living on if the your street, kid you feels like, like job. if your kid feels like they can come and talk to you about literally yeah. anything, I think that that is the only marker of a good parent that I really believe in. If your kid can literally come tell you anything because you've yeah. created a safe space That's for so them. True. Interesting. I kind of do agree with that. Yeah. I feel like there's more to it than that, but you can't be a good parent and not have that, mm-hmm. you know? It's interesting because it's making me think I'm right now reading Crying in H Mart, mm-hmm. which I obviously is a lot like about. It. 
I'm only I didn't like, love it. I'm oh. like 60 pages in, so I can't really speak to it yet. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm enjoying it so far. Yeah. Um, and I also find it interesting because she's from Oregon and from Eugene and oh, so right. like it's kind of interesting oh, to hear about yeah. yeah yeah for her upbringing okay, there yeah. is interesting to hear about and especially like um her experience in the music scene in the Pacific Northwest yeah. is interesting and mm-hmm. I just read um in the fall Carrie Brownstein's um cool. memoir which was really great I really recommend that yeah. um so yeah I'm finding it interesting in that way but I was thinking about like on that topic of motherhood obviously she's talking a lot about She's a challenging relationship with her mom, but she's reflecting on her relationship after her mom has died. And she has a lot of love for her mom and a lot of grief and all these things. But like this one scene like really sticks in my mind where they went to like the Korean spa where they're like fully nude. And the mom sees that the author has um, like... I don't know, trimmed her pubic hair. Yeah, or something. She's got like the full body wax. Yeah. yeah or like whatever. Part. Yeah. Whatever yeah. she's done. And yeah. the mom's like, did you shave? Uh-huh. And the daughter's like, I trimmed mom. Like, chill out. And the mom's like, don't do that. You look like a slut. And so uh, that part's funny. But like, but it's interesting because like, I don't know, we think it's so wrong for your mom to tell you you look like a slut. But like, the mom, and like, I'm like, objectively. If my mom told me I looked like a slut, I'd be like, I respect your opinion, queen. Like, like when you, you, put, it, when you, put, <laughs> when you put it in black and white, like that's a strong thing for a parent to say to a child. But also, like, I don't know. I I can't shake that thought of that like protective mechanism kicking in. Like mm. that might be that mom's way of expressing like I want you to be safe. Like yeah. I, I, I think want about you to that be all loved the time. and, you know, and yeah. respected yeah. and all of these things. But like mm-hmm. the but way that's out communicated, and yeah. it's like the love languages. But like, there it's, is like a different. new form of like there is like a new facet of woke parenting where it's like you let your kids wear whatever the fuck they want like they want to walk out butt ass naked you don't say anything to them because it's their body their choice whatever and I again like I don't think I have a strong like well-formulated opinion on this because I am not a parent and I do not intend on being a parent but I find that very interesting because on the one hand I was always policed on what I wore growing up so I'm like like leave me the fuck alone but then on the other hand I'm like but should your 16-year-old daughter be walking out in, like, a bralette? At, I like, would for sure a. have some. You I feel like I mean? if you raise your kids, like, in a way that they, like, is this anti-feminist? They, like, respect themselves. Disclaimer or something. I am a feminist, well, but I swear. That's, it's a complicated question. And one reason I really, like, I will die on this hill. I need you guys to read The Right to Sex by Amina Srinivasan. I want everyone to read that book. I think it's amazing. But one thing that... I walked away with from that book was the really complicated nuance in the question of like sex positive feminism versus this more Mm -hmm. conservative sexually version of feminism and like it is that question of like some people think that being really sexually um explicit is like like, empowering and some people think it's like yeah yeah, some people think it's not respecting yourself and there's compelling arguments and counter arguments on both sides and yeah. i would actually to that, maybe but... on a different day be really curious to hear what you guys think about that debate because i have yeah. pretty strong opinions mm-hmm. about it yeah. yeah that i've thought about for a long time mm-hmm. interesting yeah. wait i know i, I really want to stick around to hear <laughs> about it but i do have to prep for my freaking interview tomorrow morning yeah, you have to i'm really that. nervous yeah, let's finish yeah. the pod really quick like i'll just do a little wrap-up yeah. question we finished list montage what are you reading now and what are you reading next Okay, I can go first because I do have to run. Yes. Right now, I am 
I just finished Julius Caesar again today because I'm going to see it on Saturday at Bart on the Beach. Anyways, but I am currently reading The Minds of Billy Milligan, which is about um, the, I don't know if you guys know about this case, the campus rapist back in like the 70s, I want to say. And he was also the first person with DID to be um, like acquitted of his charges on the grounds of DID um and then what am I reading next I want to read Emma by Jane Austen actually I kind of want something I kind of want something light and fresh and like nice and that's your light that's your light and fresh (laughs) (laughs) Emma is light and fresh yeah because I've been reading a lot of really dark stuff recently and I just need a break um so yeah that's what I'm reading I do have to run I will hear what all of you are currently reading reading next when I listen to the podcast (laughs) (laughs) bye good luck on your interview all right, one of Barzine has left our midst. I'm just announcing <laughs> yeah. for the podcast. I miss her already. Um, okay, one of the Olivia's. What are you reading? I will, okay, so last time we had book club, I was complaining about how I need to read more philosophy. And so Olivia O lent me, um, what is it called? God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him by Nietzsche, which is part of the Penguin Great Idea series. And so I've read like 80 out of 120 pages of that. But unfortunately, like, I'm not, I don't have a very high attention span. (laughs) And so I decided that I needed to cut the seriousness with a rom-com. And so last night I read The Hating Game by (laughs) Sally Thorne. (laughs) I love it. It took me maybe like... I read it in less than 24 hours and I really liked it. But then Farzine commented, no, girl, don't read this. It's terrible. When I was 90% through it and like loving it. <laughs> but a fun fact for the pod, my mom is um, a rom-com aspiring writer and she liked The Hating Game so much that she sent Sally Thorne an Instagram DM and Sally Thorne answered. <laughs> That's so cute. That's very cute. I love that. I think... I'm a huge proponent of reading multiple books at the same time, and I always am. I, I will. That. I think hundred percent. Sometimes you can't yes. always have the heavy or always have the light. You need to balance. I'm almost done Nietzsche. It very the, the juxtaposition is just like absolutely stunning between those two. Yeah, I believe you. Okay, Olivia. Um, oh, so what I'm reading right now is War and Peace in the Global Village by Marshall McLuhan. <laughs> Another light. <laughs> I'm reading Um, War and Peace. (laughs) Not War and Peace, but War and Peace in the Global Village. Oh, that's an important distinction. Oh, yes. Marshall McLuhan is so genius, and I want to read everything he's written. Um, He's a media studies scholar, and I read, I was introduced to him through one of my media, literature media classes last semester and um then I found this book in a used bookstore when I was in Europe oh I love when that happens yeah so I didn't really know much about it but it's so <laughs> you said it's that called... like you're just like always in Europe oh, I love I don't I, actually, I love when that happens I heard it after the fact I meant I love when I am thinking of a writer and then I find them in a used bookstore I've never done that in Europe okay <laughs> I love it well, when I find used copies of war and peace yeah in we're Europe, really pretentious here everything. but that but, did happen um, to me once it was crazy because uh, I love Toni Morrison oh yeah and oh. I had been listening to a podcast that mentioned her book Sula 
And I, I had I hadn't heard of that book because it's not one of her more well-known ones. And then that very day I listened to it in the morning and I went to a used bookstore just like I had t- like 10 minutes to kill. So I popped in kind of mm-hmm. a thing. And I was like, it was one of those used bookstores that was so messy. I was like, I'm not going to find anything. Oh my gosh. And I was on my way out. And then I and see the at the hold. top of the stack right by the door of Sula. And I was like, like for $2. So I bought That's it. God. I know. And I was like, there's a reason I had to read it right now. Like mm. the universe was giving it to me. Yeah. I don't know that reason still. And it's been well, since 2021. But I loved the book. <laughs> I saw that book mentioned also on um some girls like YouTube video about what she was reading and i hadn't heard of it either like i had the same exact thought process as you but i saw it on goodreads that you had read it mm-hmm. so i have my copy I still. You I my sister has my copy but okay. when i get it back from my sister i will give it to you okay um but it it kind of talks about like the potentials of a world where it explores like the boundaries of technology mm-hmm. and i mean he's just he's just a media scholar guy like he just his main one of his main ideas is about all technology kind of being extensions of us like extensions of different limbs of us like the wheel is the extension of the foot um whatever and then this idea is that the computer is the extension of the nervous system (gasps) that's so interesting i know okay i love it when there's crossovers between science and humanity yeah like that i think that it's like the coolest thing ever and i think that it's a shame this is a whole other discussion but i think it's a shame that today in today's academic world like we just choose a niche and we never leave it but like in the past like in like ancient greece you had these dudes and they were doing like everything Mm -hmm. they were like tracking like the stars patterns and then they were also like contemplating life which is like pretty pretty lit if you ask me (laughs) um okay what are you reading next next so i just finished american psycho and I really want to read The Shards by Brett Easton Ellis. Mm-hmm. I really want to read his reading or read his writing in a different plot context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, give him another chance. Especially after bet. American Psycho. I bet. Exactly. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then Reciprocity. I'm reading Crying in H Mart. And I'm reading, I've been reading All About Love by Bell Hooks. But mm-hmm. my problem with that one is that I want to give it 100% of my brain and I always pick it up when I have maybe 75% of my brain so I've been reading it for a couple months but I swear to god I'm finishing it soon because and I really care about it and I think it's a very interesting I've been wanting to read that one for a while I only recently added it to my list but it's one of my sister's favorites and she's Mm. been raving about it and telling me to read it well yeah I will I borrow the copy from someone else so I can't lend it to you, but I will give you my full review when I do read it. Yeah. And then next on the docket, I will be reading The Woman Destroyed by Simone de Beauvoir. I want to read that in French to like up my like elitist point. Okay, well, not all of us speak that. No, I'm just kidding. No, what a shame. I'm going to stop recording. It's been okay. really good book talk though. Yes. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Soul Soup. I'll be back in two weeks, and until then, I hope you feed your soul.